0: Well this morning we come to Hebrews chapter 3 and verses 16 to 19. Hebrews 3:16 if you turn there in your Bibles page 1197 in those Pew Bibles and as we turn we find ourselves at a perfect text this morning to prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. There's an incredible array of depth That is brought to us in this third chapter of the book of Hebrews. A variety of teaching styles. And we're we're very familiar with that. We all have our particular preferences regarding teaching and preaching styles. Some like the big booming baritone voice who just rocks you. One kind of stops you in your tracks. Some prefer those with a foreign accent Like Alistair Begg and Sinclair Ferguson, who the rest of us think ought not really be preaching around here because it's just not fair. Some preachers are screamers and it's just this loud, shrill voice that just keeps you on the edge of your seat. And everyone has their preferences. And the same thing exists whether we're in a pulpit or a classroom. and, And even we see it within the book of Hebrews. Our boys have been speaking about this as they're in college and settled in and starting to see their new professors and get an understanding of them. And we hear discussion about the unique styles of teaching. How some work from a basis of friendship and encouragement to the students, always trying to keep them upbeat and, you know, hey, I'm here with you. And, you know, most of those are like, well, if you fail, it's your own fault anyway, so I'm really not going to worry about it. Um, We find that that can work in a preacher, but there's more to the message than just absolutely good news. And we find ourselves, if we're seeking only to bring good news to our flocks, in positions of heresy, ignoring the truth of Scripture and the, and the sin and the judgment and the condemnation that is brought forward in it, and we find ourselves in the same roles as those like Joel Osteen. Some, rather than motivating by encouragement, seek to motivate by fear. Those professors who seek to scare the students into submission by sending them a hundred page syllabus about all that they need to do for the upcoming semester, which seems just daunting and and can't be accomplished. Well, this doesn't work great as an exclusive method either, nor in ministry it's not good because although there are strong messages of that nature in the Bible, it needs to be measured with connectivity and with warmth to the people. Some teach seek to teach through the aspects of leading and drawing through. This is an especially effective methodology as they establish themselves as leaders and then seek to instruct others to follow them. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. It was a beautiful picture of this. Some will even lead by confrontation. The the professor who sits and asks the probing question to see who really knows the material but Solo, what are the 18 identifying characteristics of the hypostatic union? Ah, 18. These motivate by pushing you to consider the depth of your knowledge. This too is valuable, but continuous confrontation is usually not too good or too comfortable, particularly in a pulpit, as it's hard for people to sit and listen and be berated continually. Yet it's interesting that all of these have value and particularly when they're combined and used interchangeably and even more so when they employ various interrogative styles that is questions that are randomly brought forward through the teaching. And it's also interesting that that is exactly what the author of Hebrews does for us in our text today as he brings these questions to our mind, and that's where our title comes from this morning, Penetrating Questions of Entry and Departure. Penetrating Questions of Entry and Departure. Let's look at our text together in Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to go back and begin at verse 12 for context, so follow along with me as I read through our text for today. Hebrews 3 and verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness?' And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Penetrating questions of entry and departure. Our text today uses a method of, inter- of interrogation to address our topic and Through these questions, it reveals who it is that will receive the wrath of God. The topic of this second warning passage is just that, the coming wrath of God. That which has been discussed since verse 11. And there are three heart-searching questions in our text today. Three probing facets that reveal who receives God's wrath. Our text switches from Jesus' superiority over the angels in chapters 1 and 2 now to Jesus' superiority over Moses in chapter 3. And the author, as he changes, likewise, changes his style into this third chapter. But we want to keep in the forefront of our minds that topic that he has entered this chapter on, the superiority of Christ over Moses. And as we did and as we've spoken about before, there is great literary genius that's exhibited for us in the book of Hebrews. The wonderful styles that the author uses, such a gifted writer, the organization of materials, how there are these parenthetical elements, which are the warning passages that are fit in amongst the narrative flow and the argumentation of the superiority of Christ. Ultimately, we know the author is the Holy Spirit and, and I presented my conviction to you that I believe Paul is the one who has written the book of Hebrews and have discussed that. We won't elaborate on that. I would welcome your discussion if you're so inclined. But here in the third chapter, the author uses each of the teaching styles that I mentioned. Another example of the extreme giftedness of this writer and the beauty of the, the book In verse 1 of chapter 3, the author uses that friendship technique. He makes connectivity with the audience and he explains the common blessing that we all have in our faith and how we are each partakers of the heavenly calling and part of Christ's household if we hold fast our faith. And so there's this encouragement and that friendly presentation that's begun in the first six verses of the chapter. And then in verse 7, he switches to the mechanism of fear. And he introduces the second warning passages. And he reminds his audience of the rebellious wilderness generation. Those who all died in the wilderness and those who did not enter his rest. Those who received the wrath of God. Now we've spoken also that there are two components of this rest. That for the children of Israel, as they were understanding rest, it was their physical entry into the promised land, into Canaan, that was their rest. But as Psalm 95 revealed, there was more to it than simply a reference to a physical rest. There was a spiritual dynamic. And that ultimately reflects into the eternal rest, which is ours in Christ... We're actually going to see a third component of rest when we move into chapter 4, if you're reading ahead. And then in verse 12, he changes style again. We move from the friendship mode to the fear mode, and in verse 12, he changes to the style of confrontation, that which we looked at last week. As he draws each one to consider their hearts and to understand the danger of an evil and unbelieving heart. With that came those rapid fire commands as we looked at being all in for Christ and those three staccato commands that came rapid fire at us. Be careful, be concerned, be committed. And there was a proper element of confrontation that was exhibited because the danger of those who were in the church thinking they were believers but actually were unbelievers... And in our final section of the warning passage today, we see the fourth style of teaching in leadership employed. This is our author guides us through these three probing facets that reveal who receives the wrath of God. And he asks these a series of questions. We're drawn to understand the full weight of this second warning passage. Although we have three points in our message today, one per each of the verses, and our final verse serves as our conclusion written right into the text for us, there's actually five questions in the text today. There's two in each of our first two verses, and then there's only one. In our third verse. And these are brilliantly orchestrated and perfectly set because there is a point that he is making. So we want to note those structures even though nuances. It is the nuances of the word of God that make it flower before us. And show us the brilliance that God has in his plan. All perfectly orchestrated to draw us to the conclusion. So let's look at our first point in verse 16. The distressed the distressed. Look at verse 16 with me again, if you would. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Well, we immediately see our two questions. First, who provoked him? And second of those questions, wasn't it all of them? The who of those that distressed God takes us back to Hebrews 3.8. And if you glance back in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 8, we see, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. The same word provoked that we have here in verse 16. It is the wilderness generation that's being addressed. The second part of the question confirms this for us. But the point here in repeating this is to show us that this is all one literary unit. That this entire warning is one piece that's brought together. One passage of continuous context, and the importance of this is going to become very evident as we move along. So we ask first how did they provoke God? Well, we go back to the Old Testament to Jeremiah chapter 44 in verse 3 and it answers that question. Listen as I read Jeremiah 44, 3. Because of their wickedness, which they committed so as to provoke me to anger by continuing to burn sacrifices and to serve other gods whom they had not known, neither they, you, nor your fathers... Jeremiah brings to the forefront all of the wickedness and the evil that was going on amongst the children of Israel, amongst the wilderness generation. How they were actually offering burnt sacrifices in the form of their very own children to the god Molech. Something that is deplorable and horrific to us. And so much more so to our god. And they were offering wrong sacrifices, they were offering incense on all of the high places, which we've seen in some of our previous verses. And this idolatry, this worshiping other gods, was shown to us to be akin to immorality. And that's exactly what we saw Wednesday night when we were in Ezekiel chapter 6 and 7 how God is so offended by idolatry and he brings it to us as if it were sexual immorality within the confines of a marriage and the heinousness that one would feel and the offendedness and the sickness that would come into our souls knowing that one whom we loved and poured our lives into and had lived with would commit such an act. And this is how God sees this idolatry as if it were indeed immorality. And so they provoked God. And notice, they did so having heard, as the first part of verse 16 shows us. The order of the verbs here in the Greek text, having heard is actually the first verb. And it shows us that they already knew. They had already heard this before they provoked him. So the hearing came first. We know this when we consider back to the history as revealed to us of the wilderness generation. If we go back to Exodus, we see in Exodus 19 and 20 that God called Moses to bring the congregation of the children of Israel together before Mount Sinai, and he would speak with them. And that they are to purify themselves and come, all are to stay back, And God does speak at the end of Exodus 19 and into Exodus 20 where he gives them the Ten Commandments. And they are in awe, they are in great fear, as they should be, as they hear the word of the Lord. So they had heard prior to provoking. It's no surprise here, but the root idea of the word provoke is disobedience a theme that has been resonant throughout our text, even last week. Because, beloved, God wants our obedience. And so says the scripture in Psalm 51 and verse 16 and 17. The psalmist writes in Psalm 51:16, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. See, God is looking for an obedient heart from us. And provoking God indicated their direct rebellion, one who had a recalcitrant heart, who would not turn from their sin, who were, who were loving it and loving it and living in it, to be kicking back at the goads, a term we see in the New Testament, that which the Lord accused Paul of on the road to Emmaus. Well, when did this happen? When did they provoke God? Well, there is a specific reference that's being alluded to here, and it's in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 13 and 14, to be specific. And you remember those texts, although I know Numbers is all of your favorite Bible reading, and you keep a bookmark in there, because it's so great to go through it, I can relate to that specifically. I'm reading through numbers right now and I'm in about, you know, verse 7 or chapter 7 and just kind of like, "Ooh, just keep going." But there's great stuff to be learned there. But numbers 13 and 14 take us to the spies, the 12 spies. When the Lord instructed Moses to go out and take one of the elders, one of the heads of the households from each of the 12 tribes and bring them and send them in to see the land that he was sending them to. And as they went in, you remember what happened. They brought back a a cluster of grapes so big they had to put it on a pole between two guys, probably bigger than the fish that Tom caught this last week. And then they brought all of these wonderful things, but what did they say? Oh, but the people, they're giants. They're the Anakim. We don't have a chance against them. There's no way. And so it tells us how many of them provoked God in their disobedience. Well, this is our second question, which rhetorically gives us the answer. It was all of them, all of those who came out of Egypt led by Moses. Of course, this was all of those over 20 years old, as Numbers 14, 29 confirms. And it was also Caleb and Joshua. All of the others, then those, were the ones who distressed God by provoking him. Verse 16, and the distressed, is the first phase of the summation of the warning passage to this point. And it's a summation of the process of sin. The first phase summed up in the verb provoked, they provoked God, thus they were the distressed. And the second point details the second phase of sin. And our second point is the deserved, the deserved in verse 17. Look at verse 17 with me. In verse 17 we see, and with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Here are our second set of questions. The first question, with whom was he angry for 40 years? And the second, was it not those who sinned? Our focus changes now from verses 16 to 17. In verse 16, we were looking at the subject of the wilderness generation. Now the subject and focus becomes God. Beloved, this always needs to be our main focus. If we are not considering God first and foremost, we've got a problem. And think about that in your own lives. When there is sin that exists in our lives and we are living in those things that we know we ought not do, where is our focus? It's on ourselves, isn't it? We are considering our own desires and our own interests. We're not thinking about God. And it isn't just when we are in sin. This happens at times when we are in a situation of earnest love. When we are focusing completely on another. This happens oftentimes in a new relationship. The two individuals are so focused on one another and perhaps some of you can remember this when you were first in your relationship with your husband or wife. I mean, you just got to, kind of got the, the Google eyes for them. And you're just always staring at them and you know, oh man, she's so cute. And where's our focus? Is it on God? What is going to carry us through? Those of you that have been married for more than a few months... What is the focus that's going to carry you through your message? Is it an earnest love for your spouse or is it an earnest love for God by which you rightly love your spouse? Well, I know the answer, and so do you. We have to have our focus on God. And when we don't, there is the problem. Well, who were these that he was angry with for 40 years? Well, we know the answer again is the wilderness generation firmy, further confirming for us the direction of his judgment. But notice something about this, which we might move right by. We go 40 years in the wilderness. We all know that was how long they wandered in the wilderness, how why they were all brought and, and not allowed into the promised land and all brought to death through that time. What else might be significant about 40 years? If we go all the way back and we consider the first message we talked about on Hebrews, we address the timing of this epistle. That it was written somewhere near the late 60s, 67 to 70 AD. If we subtract 40 years from that time frame, where does it put us? It puts us at the end of the life of our Lord, in his ministry and at his death. Forty years later, we're having this letter brought forward. This is a very significant element and very appropriate to the audience. The timing of the writing being 40 years following the death of Jesus. This is just another nugget to tuck into the hem of your notes that will become more significant as we move along. Now we have the formal charge that reveals why the wilderness generation were the deserved Because they sinned. And this isn't a one-time sin. The verb indicates for us that this was an ongoing action in past time. Sin was an ongoing pattern. And their sin was grumbling. As in Numbers 14, 2. And it confirms for us that grumbling that went on. Let me read to you Numbers chapter 14 and verses 2 to 4. Numbers 14, 2. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder." Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Unbelievable. And as we know, this was not their first grumbling. They had been grumbling since day one. Listen to the first day's grumbling. First day in the wilderness with the Lord from Exodus 14 and verse 11. Which reads, they said to Moses, and here they are, of course, at the Red Sea. They said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness day one. And they have not stopped grumbling and complaining. They came out and they they had no water. And they get to water and the water is bitter and they complain. And so Moses throws in the branch and the water is made sweet. And they go on their second day's journey And they get to their next location. They've taken the water that was sweet with them and now it is gone. And again they are grumbling because there is no water. And God instructs Moses to strike the rock. The rock which we know that is Christ. And it pours forth water. And then they grumble because they have no food. And the Lord brings the manna to them. And they grumble because all they have is manna. And so they want some of the meat. And so the Lord brings them quail into the camp. And the grumbling goes on and on and on. Beloved their grumbling was a great a blatant sin. And it is something we must be so careful about. We each can be grumblers and complainers. And it is a serious, serious sin because it begins to harden our heart. It begins to make us those who are recalcitrant and disobedient because I'm not content. Shouldn't I have a little bit more? Wonderful lesson in Sunday school this morning from a brother, Dean Brown. And he is talking about atheism and how atheism can only exist in an affluent society because everything continues to be better. So we can always think that everything's great because we have so much. What happens when we have not? We're to rejoice in the Lord and not be those who would grumble. Well, because of their sin, their bodies fell in the wilderness. And this is such a prominent event that it's often repeated in Scripture. In fact, I want you to turn with me to one of those places. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, page 1147 in that pew Bible. Although these events are often spoken of, the wilderness generation falling, such as we saw in Psalm 95 and we've looked at in Hebrews 3, 1 Corinthians 10 is an extended look at this section of scripture. Scripture. And it is a powerful consideration. Almost half of the chapter, New Testament chapter, focuses on the wilderness wilderness generation and their sin. Let's take a quick look at it. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So he immediately sets the context for us. He is speaking about the wilderness generation. Those who were with Moses passing under the cloud is the Shekinah glory. Passing through the sea is the Red Sea. He goes on in verse 3, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. Speaking of God's provision of manna, God's provision of water, even God's provision of the quail. For they were, continuing in verse four, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. Verse six. Now these things happened as examples for us. So that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. How much had things changed in the 1,450 plus years since the wilderness generation to the writing of the book of Hebrews and 1 Corinthians through the epistles? Not at all. So they're written so that we would understand them as an example, for so it is today. Let's continue on in verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play these the very words that are written in Exodus as they made the golden calf, verse 8. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day this the the sin of Korah and his rebellion, verse 9. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Beloved, can these not be the actions of our lives? The grumbling that goes on in our lives? the immorality and the thoughts. We know that we may, we may say, well, I, I have not done any immoral actions and all we have to do is go back to Matthew 5 where the Lord says that if you have lusted for a woman in your heart, you have already committed adultery with her. These can be us. These can be our acts. These can be our thoughts. This can be our idolatry. Lusting and loving after our money, our homes, our jobs, whatever it might be. Whatever we place in place of God and we must not have it and Hebrews 3:17 confirms the deserving consequences their bodies fell in the wilderness These were the deserved. The distressed had provoked God in the first phase. Here in our second phase, the deserved had angered God through their sin. And now we turn to the third phase in our third point, the damned in verse 18. The damned. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedience. Only one question now. The prior two points both had two questions. The first was a direct question. The second a rhetorical question that answered the first. And now we have a direct answer to the direct question. Who would not enter his rest is the direct question. And the direct answer is those who were disobedient. God swore that these would not enter Beloved, when God swears, we must pay attention. He is making an oath, and this is serious business. God's word is true. Romans 3, 4 says, Rather let God be found true, and every man be found a liar. In Jesus' high priestly prayer of John 17, 17, the Lord says there in the 17th chapter and verse, Jesus said to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. The the word swore here is the same verb used of making an oath. And the same level of, of importance is attached to it. And beloved, we cannot move past this word too quickly because it is applied directly to us in other places in the New Testament. This is a direct connection between God and man in our speech. We are to be those who are like God because we are to be holy as he is holy. So when we speak, we are to speak truth and not lies. And the scripture warns about the dangers of making oaths in Matthew 5, 34. Be careful by what you swear by. Even says, let no one make an oath by heaven or by Jerusalem. Because the danger, beloved, is saying one thing And then doing something else. Or saying one thing to one person and then going over and saying something different to the other person because that's going to please the first person and this is going to please the second. It's called being double-tongued. This is one of the key disqualifying acts among deacons and elders. As I have experienced in the churches that I have pastored as I have seen in other churches and known of the disqualifying elements amongst elders and deacons, this is almost always a prominent part of their disqualification. All people are to be men and women of their word, but deacons and elders who are double-tongued have disqualified themselves. Those who say one thing here and change it for the next audience to please them. They are therein disqualified. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5:37, But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. That is the same thing, yes and yes to two audiences, or no and no. And he goes on, anything beyond these is evil. How important is it? that our words be the same, that we are truth tellers. Our words must mean something for the man whose words do not mean anything, that man means nothing. We are only as good as our word and he who holds an office in the church must abide by this. God swore that they would not enter his rest. He made an oath. So although they came out of Egypt, in verse 16, they would not enter into his rest. And it was because of their disobedience, directly stated for us in verse 18. They would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient. Their obstinacy and their rebellion resulted in damnation. And all of this moves us in verse 19 to our conclusion. Look at it with me. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. The lack of entry is because of unbelief. Now now this is more than a lack of faith. This is an active unbelief. The assessment of unbelievers confirms our proposed audience that we discussed back in verse 12. Do you remember that? We looked at verse 12 and where it says, take care, brethren, and we said, how can this be? Brethren are believers, but there was that third audience in the church, the believers, the unbelievers, and then there were those who thought they were believers, but were not. This confirms for us that they never were truly believers Confirms that the proposed audience are those who are without Christ. And there's an intrinsic connection here between verses 18 and 19. but Between the elements of disobedience and disbelief. And we must not miss it. One commentator puts it this way. As we read these texts, unbelief equates to a lack of obedience. Lack of obedience equates to unbelief to disbelieve God is to disobey God to disobey God is to have a lack of belief or to state it positively the one who obeys believes that God is this was exactly our application from last week so the master teacher has used each teaching style to convey this pivotal truth. But the question is, why does he use this area of Jesus' superiority over Moses to be the stage for this discussion? Why is this warning passage couched around the Lord's superiority to Moses? Think about that for just a minute. Why would he do that? Why would this be the place? Well, the answer lies in the example Moses was righteous. As we saw in verses 1 to 6, he was righteous above all men or above all his house, all of the house of Israel. But the point was that amidst Moses' righteousness, amidst the, the visual representation and existence with God in the wilderness, disobedience and disbelief resulted in the defection from God. How can that be? So now the warning comes with respect to Jesus. We've seen this whole section as one literary unit and we also know that the 40 years was the same for the wilderness generation as it was for those who were being written to since the time of the Lord's existence on earth. And now the question is narrowing down from two questions to one question, specifically identifying disobedience as the sin which identifies disbelief. So the question becomes, Jesus is even more righteous than Moses. Will there yet be defection that results within the, ch- within the church from disbelief and disobedience? What do you think? Will there yet be defection? The answer is yes. That's why there is this group who think they are believers. It occurred in the church of Hebrews and it occurs in the church today. Do you remember we just read those verses from 1 Corinthians 10? Let me read for you the following two verses in verses 11 and 12 of 1 Corinthians 10. Now these things happened to them as an example And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Well, these are written so that we would have an example, they are written as a warning. They are written for us to stop and consider where we are in our lives. To assess where there are elements of disobedience in our life and to eradicate them. To not allow them to get a foothold in our lives. That we would hold fast to the obedience of God and of His word. And that we would be all about focusing on Him. These are the penetrating questions of entry and departure. The penetrating question of the warning passage is, Where are you? Are you asking yourself the question of disobedience? Or are you just comfortable saying, You know, I know I'm all good? Because, beloved, none of us are all good. Are you considering your entry into God's rest? Do you recognize that this is a vital question? Young people, this is especially applicable to each of you. We all think that we have forever to live when we're young. When you are 15 or 20 or 25, and you look at somebody that's 50 or 60, that's an eon away. They are so old, they are so far away, I'm never gonna get there. Right? Just last week in California, a young man 27 years old married five weeks left his home and was hit by a speeding motorist fleeing from the law driving at over 100 miles an hour and five weeks into marriage this graduate of the master's college active in the music ministry is taken from his wife And she is understandably shell-shocked. And not one of us knows our days. We must consider this vital question. Are we considering our entry into God's rest? None of us know the time, beloved. But the one thing that we can know is that we are all disobedient to God. We are all deserving of His wrath as long as we are apart from Him. And there is only one answer and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must turn to him with all of our heart and with all of our soul. We must love him with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. And our very existence must be living and loving obedience to him and to his word. And we all need to grow in it. Is that the penetrating question that you're contemplating? I pray that it is.